Invite everyone to come in and have a seat, please. Thank you. As you're coming in, I have a few books to give away. It's the same title, but I have three of them. Uh, there's this great series that, that Crossway has been publishing the last couple years, and uh, the title of the series is Short Studies in, in Biblical Theology. So uh, biblical theology, uh, essentially, it's, it's, it's similar to systematic theology in that it, 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 it follows a particular uh, theme or topic, but biblical theology differs from systematic theology in that oftentimes the way that it's told is through the storyline of the scriptures, I think is a good way to explain it. Uh, so I have a book to give away. It's about 100 pages. I have three of them. It won um, the ECPA Christian Book of the Year Award. and It's called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel by Ray Ortland. It's a fantastic book. Uh, Ray is a, is, a, is a theologian by training and uh, is probably most qualified to talk about marriage. So if you'd like this book, uh, you can raise your hand. Alan, Peter, and then... Whoever else raises their hand, Dan, or you can read it. And just uh, by way of announcement also, second, Emma, who is our children's ministry coordinator, asked me if I would uh, call your attention to the need for four more volunteers. So if you're a member of the church and you're willing to go through a, a background check, uh, we could use your help to serve in the nursery about uh, once every six weeks. So we need four, and actually we'll take volunteers right now. If you could raise your hand. Do it. Larissa? You raised your hand to point to your wife, which counts as you too, right? <laughs> okay. So. Hillary and Aaron. Okay, wait, there we go. We got four. <laughs> Stephen Larissa and Hillary and Aaron. I'll tell Emma. <clears throat> uh, the last several weeks, one of the things that I like to do, and my, my wife and I like to do, is we like to listen to, to podcasts or radio shows. And, um, and there's, there's particularly ones that come out once a week, and maybe it's an investigative journalism, or it's, or it's following a particular uh, interesting story, and the one that we listened to most recently was called Hinge, and I commend it to you uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, but Hinge was a conversation for about eight different episodes between a man who's a pastor at Redeemer Church in New York City and his friend who's uh, an atheist, and they go through uh, just several different conversations. They talk about the nature of miracles. They talk about the nature of, of knowledge and discovery. And it's, it's, very, it's, it's produced well, and it's an engaging story and, and so on. But there was this one section where uh, the Christian was asking his friend, you know, what, what would it take for you to believe? Like, what, what would it take? I mean, what, what, if, what if you stood on the beach and you asked God for a miracle, and you said, God, if you're real, then speak to me right now, and he did. Let's say he, 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 the heavens opened, and God spoke to you, and the man responded, and he said, I don't know what you could actually say or what God could do to ask me to, to believe, because 
I feel like if I did ask for a sign and I got something like that, I still wouldn't believe it. I would feel like I had a doubt in what I actually just saw. Someone honest and profound, acknowledging that there maybe isn't anything that he would even doubt a proof. And I say all that and I make that example because the section that we're in here in Matthew's gospel, when we get to chapter 12, verse 22, and we go through these three or four stories here, they're all about doubt. And they're all about rejecting the Messiah. They're about rejecting Jesus. These are people that have walked with Jesus. They've heard his teaching. They've, they've seen him perform miracles. And yet they don't believe. And as Andrew read to us in the scripture reading, they ask for even an additional sign. And he tells them that he will give them the sign of Jonah. It's a very challenging passage where we're going to be particularly focusing our time because we're going to be focusing our time really on chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. And I think this is a, a place that can sort of summarize this whole notion of rejection, belief, and so on. And verses 31 and 32 are, are a very challenging place to preach from. And I should say at the outset here that just putting all cards on the table, that that the elders, and I can speak for myself, are weary and tired. And... Um, So when I got up early this morning, not feeling like preaching, I just went to these two verses, and I just stayed there and thought on them and thought on them and thought on them and really changed up my sermon. Because when you get to a place of being weary and tired, the only thing that can really nourish your soul is the word of God. And the only thing I know to do is to stare at a passage and think about it and pray about it and think about it and pray about it until some kind of penny drops from my head to my heart. That's what I tried to do this morning. So let's, let's be nourished by the word of God together. Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to read 22 to 32, and I'll preach on 31 and 32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, 
By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Father, we, I, am weary and tired, and we need nourishment from your word. Lord, would you feed us as we hear it? Lord, would you nourish me as I teach it? Help us, Lord, be glorified in this place. Help me, in Jesus' name, amen. So three points, forgiveness, repentance, and the sign. Forgiveness, repentance, and the sign. Verse 32 says, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So the, the challenge and what often happens when we come to this text and we think about this text, you know, we, we ask the question, what is this sin against the Holy Spirit? What is this unpardonable sin? It's a question that I remember asking even as a young man, sort of intrigued by this whole question. What is this one sin so that I don't inadvertently commit it and don't end up outside the goodness and love and grace of God. And in some level, it haunted me as a young man. But before we look at that point, verse 32a is an incredibly fascinating and glorious point. There is an enormous willingness in God to forgive. There is a massive grace in God that is willing to forgive. Let me unpack that. It's first part, verse 32, it says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, and you know that this phrase, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel. And this figure in the book of Daniel is this figure of royalty. And you can think about uh, ancient royalty, or you can think about even modern royalty, but in, in ancient royalty, think about the nature of, of a king, of a ruler, of kingship, and the kind of honor that was, that was due to this person. You, you, obviously, you don't even go to this king unless he first calls you to go to him. You know, he speaks to who he wants to speak to. He beckons who he wants to talk to, and they come, and when he says it, they come. And, and, and think about the fact when you would be before a king like this, you wouldn't look at him in the eye, you would, you would bow before him, you wouldn't turn your back on him. When you were through talking, you would look down and you would walk backwards out of the room. You know, we recently uh, saw 
a movie, the, the, the biopic about Winston Churchill, and he was invited by the, prime minister, by the king rather, to be prime minister. And when he's invited by the king, this is even you know, in, the, in the 40s, he's invited by the, by, by the king and to be asked to be prime minister, there is, there is great pomp and there is circumstance, and he bows and he takes a step and he bows and he takes a step and he bows and he takes a step. But Jesus says, I will forgive words that are spoken against me. The things that Jesus says of himself, he declares himself to be the Messiah, he declares himself to be the king of the Jews, he declares himself to be the king of the world, and yet he says, kind of in this cursory fashion, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. And that's where I was this morning. To not blow by that too quickly. There is not a sense in Jesus where he has some kind of how dare you kind of grasp on his rule and his authority and his power. This is the Jesus, this is the king of the Jews who didn't just endure people speaking behind his back. This is the, this is the king of the world who endured the jeers and the mocking of the crowd while he hung on the cross. He hung on the cross naked in front of his mother, his brothers, and his friends. And people mocked him and spat on him. And he says, forgive them, they know not what they do. He says, forgive them. But there's another side of the coin here on the nature of forgiveness. Because there's also uh, spoken of in both of these in 31 and 32 that there is a blasphemy or uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a kind of sin that will not be forgiven. And I've said it before, and we've said it before, um, but there's a, there's a place where uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a minister and a pastor in, uh, in, in London uh, for many years, and he was a, a very revered man, he was a very respectable man, um, and he said this at one point. He said, I, I say this with, with all the awe and reverence, and he said, but the greatest problem that God ever faced was forgiveness. The greatest problem that God ever faced was forgiveness. And he gave the illustration of just the first couple chapters in Genesis. When God speaks in Genesis chapter 1 and says, let there be light, there's light. His, his word accomplishes his will. It's not like he speaks and then some angels go and do their bidding and make light. God's word accomplishes its own purposes. So he says, let there be light, and there's light. He says, let there be a, a, an earth, and there's an earth. He says, let me create man, and man is made. But then he gets to Genesis chapter 3, and he says, let me provide salvation for my people. And it takes hundreds and thousands of years to accomplish. Because forgiveness is probably the most costly thing in the universe. Think about it. He can speak the world into being in a moment. But to accomplish forgiveness and salvation for his people is not something that he can simply snap his fingers at. Because it speaks to the deep reality of justice. It speaks to the deep reality of the need for this to be an orderly universe. 
that even God himself doesn't just snap his fingers and forgive people and say, that's fine, let's just move on. And we know that on a social level, okay? We know that if one of us was maybe physically assaulted out on the street when we leave church here, and you know, this person's arrested and, and, and taken uh, you know, down to the precinct and so on, and, and even if we determine that we are willing to forgive them, uh, we... We go to the district attorney and we say, hey, I forgive that guy. You know, it's fine. The district attorney would say, that's nice and so on, but there's, there's more going on here than you realize. That's not, that, we can't just, for the sake of, 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 of a social contract, we can't just say, okay, well, he forgives you. Everything's cool, right? Let's go on. Because there must be justice. And we know this on a simple social, peer-to-peer, societal level. How much more with God? Because forgiveness was the most costly thing in the entire universe. For Jesus Christ to say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For Jesus Christ to say that a word spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven meant that cosmic justice had to be satisfied. It meant that he himself would have to endure the wrath of God against sin. For Jesus to say, Words spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Means that he knows he's going to the cross. For God to say, one day I will acquire and bring about salvation for my people in Genesis chapter 3 and that first gospel, Genesis 3.15. It means that he is setting in motion a plan whereby cosmic justice will be satisfied. It is the most costly thing in the entire universe. So let me apply it to us like this. I've known and seen, I'll compartmentalize a little bit here or I'll, that's not the right word. I will simplify things, oversimplify things for a moment for the sake of illustration, but two kinds of people, two kinds of Christians. I've seen a kind of Christian that can, that can accept uh, the, the, the forgiveness of the gospel and, 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 sort of, and sort of go back about their life. And sort of kind of still engage in maybe the things that they were doing before and, and you know, their, their lives are, you know, the, the, the Jesus has now been added to their life and so on. And then I've met people. I've met people who have come to know the Lord Jesus and their lives are radically turned inside out. Their lives are totally changed. Their affections change. Their social relationships change. Their interactions with other people change. The way they relate to people change. Their outlook on forgiveness changes. Their outlook on on, on people that aren't like them changes. And I think it really does come down to our understanding and our grasp of the costliness of forgiveness. When we understand and, and, and grasp the costliness of forgiveness, what it means for us to come to the Lord Jesus, for him to save us, bring us home, make us his, welcome us back, make us his, his, his brothers and fellow heirs in the kingdom, meant the most costly act in all of the universe. And when that begins to trickle down from our head to our heart, it should radically change us from the inside out. It should make us people that see the world radically different. That all of our life, every moment, is just radical, sheer grace. We sang a moment ago, 
And I'm so grateful that Gabe sang the verse again. And I wanted to sing it again and again and again. When Satan tempts me to despair. And he tells me of the guilt within. Because I am guilty. And you are guilty. It's true. It's totally true. The worst things that have ever been said about you and the worst things that have been ever said about me just scratch the surface. They just scratch the surface. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of that real guilt within, not some, not some false guilt, not some false accusation, but tells me where I am guilty within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful, guilty, wretched soul is counted free. Because God, the just, is satisfied. Justice has been accomplished. The most costly act in the universe is finished, and now he looks on him and he pardons me. And he looks on, on Jesus and pardons you. Not fake guilt, the real guilt. The real things that you've done. And when that trickles down, the nature of forgiveness, it should have the most profound of effects on our lives and our heart. Let me apply it to us another way. <laughs> Excuse me. Forgiveness. This is from Miroslav Volf. I remember this from that justice conference we went to four or five years ago. And Miroslav Volf is a, he, he, he um, tells of, of, of growing up uh, under the Iron Curtain and the kind of, uh, the kind of pain that he endured as a, as a young man and having come and immigrated to the United States says, writes a lot about forgiveness and what he's had to endure. And he says that forgiveness is always an outrage. It's always an outrage. Forgiveness is, he says, it's always shocking. He says, even when it's practical. He gives examples of, the, of, of forgiveness at times just being practical for the need to preserve a marriage, for the need to preserve a relationship. It's just a practical thing to do. But he says, even in those moments when you know you have to, it's shocking because the sense of justice isn't satisfied. Because in an act of forgiveness, you are absorbing the wrong. In an act of forgiveness, justice is satisfied, at least temporarily, at least for the now, it is satisfied by the forgiver. And it's shocking. It's an outrage. Have you ever struggled to forgive? It seems contrary to our nature because we know injustice is wrong. We know that the things that people have said to us or about us are wrong. And it's only through the gospel that through Jesus accomplishing us for us in the most costly of ways can we ever come to terms with this. That's point one. Forgiveness. Point two, repentance. Therefore, verse 31, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So is that a contradiction? 
in verse 31? Which is it? Because it says um, that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. And then the next part, part B, says, except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or against the Spirit, will not be forgiven. So what does this mean? Did Jesus just say, did he overstate it? Was he just being hyperbolic, and then he needs to kind of back it up and sort of qualify himself? I don't think so. Commentators have helped understand this in a very simple way, that he's talking about something on a global level, and then he's talking about it on a personal level, or put it this way, he's talking about something on an external level, and then he's talking about it on an internal level. Let me show you what I mean. First, what does he mean, and what do I mean by a global level? Jesus is saying that it's, there, there is not a kind of sin that is unforgivable by God. We're not looking for that one thing. I mean, everything else is under his grace, but there's this one thing that he won't forgive. He's saying that every sin that a man can commit, the kinds of sins can be forgiven. Think of even the the, the men in the scriptures. Think of David. Committed adultery, responsible for the death of Uriah, maybe more. Think of, 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 of Jacob sort of ripping off his brother for his birthright. And there's this place in Psalm 25 where David says this, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Now, what he doesn't say there is striking. He doesn't say, pardon my sin even though it is great. Pardon my sin in spite of its greatness. He says, pardon my sin because it is great. Pardon my sin for it is great. He's speaking and David is is, is well aware of the massive, gracious, loving nature of God. That God would even move into the realm of someone like this. So here's the point. The point isn't lesser sin or greater sin or lesser sinner or greater sinner. The point, the point is pride versus humility. The point is pride versus humility. And that's what he means internally. The second point here. If you resist the work of the Spirit in your life to lead you to repent, then no sin is forgivable. If you resist the work of the Holy Spirit to lead you to repent, then no sin is forgivable. That's what the Spirit does. John 16, he says, if I go, I will send the Spirit to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit's job is to convict the world, to convict you of sin and to lead you to repent. So what's in mind here on this global internal level isn't greater sin or lesser sin. It's, the, it's, it's rather pride versus humility. See, David was well aware of the greatness of his sin in Psalm 25, but it was his humility and understanding the kindness and the nature and the mercy and love of God that actually led him to pray that kind of prayer. So the unforgivable sin is to resist the work of the Holy Spirit to lead you to repent. 
to lead you to repent. And that's what John tells us again in his epistle, right? If we say we have fellowship with him while we're in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The path to healing, the path to embracing the goodness and grace of God is through repentance. And it is a doctrine that we don't talk about enough as an evangelical church. The nature of repentance. There is a vehicle, there is a means to receive the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's to repent. It's to turn from your sin, however great or however small it is. In a sense, Jesus is almost saying that anything can be helped, anything can be healed through confession and repentance. But without that humility, nothing can be healed, even the small sins. It's the Holy Spirit's job to get you to say, I was wrong. It's the Holy Spirit's job to get you to say, and for you to believe it when you say, I was wrong. And you know what? Without this, even the smallest of sins can destroy us. Without this, even the smallest of sins can destroy us. Chris alluded to it at a sermon a couple weeks ago um, of this point that Jordan Peterson makes about uh, the growing nature of a problem. What's the term? You won't tell me. There's no situation that's so bad that it cannot be made worse. There's no situation so bad that it cannot be made worse, which is the principle of dealing with problems while they're small, dealing with circumstances and situations while they're still small. And that's the principle that's at work here, that without repentance, even the smallest sins can destroy us. Even the small sins of our, of our, of our character flaws, if we're, if we're a complainy kind of person, everything's just kind of not always good enough. We don't learn to repent of that and instead embrace what God has given us in our lives. That festers and that snowballs and it grows and it just makes you a bitter person. It makes you a nasty, bitter person. Apply it to your marriage. I mean, we've all been in situations with our spouses where we think that the problem that we're in is about 10% my fault and about 90% their fault. We've all been there. Every single one of us has been there. But the beauty and the glory of repentance that's real and clean and honest of your own contribution to a situation will have magnificent effects. Because you're probably wrong anyway that it's only 10% your fault. But if you can honestly repent of even the small things, fully take responsibility, I, I challenge you. I challenge you the effects that it could quickly have on your marriage. Some of you, I've shared this with a brother this week. We were talking about marriage counseling and I was trying to give him some hope. I was trying to give him a, a vision that things can look better a lot faster than you think. Sure, there are systemic issues 
there are relational issues, there's personality issues in your marriage that are going to take a long time to deal with and that you'll both have your fatal flaws, you'll both have your besetting sins that you'll deal with for a really long time. And maybe forever, probably forever. But learning to repent and taking responsibility for your own actions could have life-changing effects on your marriage sooner than you actually think. And that's point two, repentance. So point three, the sign. And I'll be fairly brief here. The sign. So what we've been talking about and where this finds itself is in the Pharisees not believing the signs that they're seeing right in front of their face. They're attributing the acts of the Son of God to the devil. They're attributing these acts and these miracles to the work of Satan. They are so blind, and they want another sign. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Look, this is not the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is compared to Jonah. Mark's Gospel has been a a great help to me in understanding the relationship between these two because in Mark's Gospel... Uh, It's in that text where Jesus is calming the raging seas. And in Mark's gospel, he's deliberately laid out the account that's using language that is parallel. It's almost identical even to the language and the account of Jonah in the Old Testament. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat. Both of the boats were overtaken by a storm. And Jesus and Jonah were both asleep. And as Andrew showed us, In the midst of the storm, Jonah said to the sailors, uh, there's only one thing to do. Throw me in the sea, and if I perish, you will live. But if I die, if I perish, you will survive. But if I die, you will live. And they throw him into the sea. But that's the dramatic difference between the two. That's where the analogy breaks down. Did Jonah perish? No. He was cast into the sea. The storm was calmed. The people were brought to safety. Went to Nineveh. Salvation was preached. People were healed. But Jonah didn't die. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was thrown into the sea of God's cosmic justice. The storm was raging. The storm of the wrath of God against sin. And there was only one way to calm that raging sea. And that was to cast the Lord Jesus himself into it. If he perishes, we will live. And he didn't just get eaten up by a big fish and live in the belly. He died. 
And in his dying breath, he said, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus bowing his head into the ultimate storm. And someday you know, of course, that he will come again and he will still every single storm for all eternity. Because he rose from the dead three days later and he conquered sin and he conquered death and he conquered the devil. That costly act of forgiveness. And when we know that, and when we take the sign of Jonah, the love of the Son of God, cast into the wrath of God, calming that storm, and we take that into the center of ourselves, and we let it go from our head to our heart, we let it trickle down, and we meditate on the costly act of forgiveness, we will know that he loves us. We will know that he cares. And by his grace, it will give us the strength and the power to handle the storms of life with poise, the weary and the tired times with joy. It'll help us to learn to forgive one another and to even take on the cost of it into ourselves because the greatest act of forgiveness he took upon himself for our sake so that we would be brought near and we'd be brought near for all eternity. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Father, help. we're grateful. Help us, Lord. Help us as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.